All right, this morning let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews. I'm going to be introducing this book this morning. There are some important things that I need to bring up before you before we even dive into this great book of the Bible. Probably a book that people don't know too much about. Um, but I believe that we are about to embark on a journey that will bring us to a place in which we all will have the opportunity to fall in love with our Lord Jesus Christ, maybe again, and come to worship Him more consistently and more deeply, which we all need. I pray that through this study, you who really don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior will be led to repentance and faith And you will follow him the rest of your days to those who do know him that you would discover afresh the supremacy of Christ in all things. Because that's what this book's about. You know, you ever wonder why the Bible really never goes out of its way to give us the five steps of having a great family or the five steps of having a great marriage or the five steps of having victory over this addiction or that addiction. You know why? Because that's not its point. You love Christ, you'll have a good family. You love Christ, you'll overcome your sin and addiction. You love Christ and you'll know the power of Christ in your life to live in this world the way you and I ought to live and have the joy in our hearts maintained by God's Spirit. That's why it doesn't. There are no rules in the Christian life. If we are going to have one rule, is love Christ, obey him, right? And, and you will do well if you do that. So Hebrews remains one of the most timely and revel, relevant books of the Bible. Some 300 years ago, John Owen, an English Puritan, appropriately marked, no doubt, the epistle next to importance to Romans is Hebrews. Now this book builds a compelling case for the superiority of Christianity, for the superiority of the Christ of Christianity. Hebrews urges those who have experienced God's ultimate work of grace in their heart by Christ Jesus to hold fast to the final word of revelation in his son that God has given. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also... He made the world. Wow, what a dynamic opening to a book. He is quickly establishing for us that the Father spoke in many ways in the past, but His ultimate, His full, His final revelation is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to discover who He is in the book of Hebrews. So, the author characterizes this work as if you turn to chapter 13 uh, very quickly, the last chapter of this book. He says in verse 22, but I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, that little phrase, word of exhortation, really suggests to us that this book takes on more uh, the sense of more than the sense of a letter, but actually this book was a sermon and follows the pattern of a Hebrew homily, a Hebrew sermon. In fact, uh, it also, though, has the earmarks of being a letter. If you look at the rest of the verse, uh, it says in verse 22, I urge you, brethren, bear This is chapter 13. Bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 
take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon, I will see you. And then verse 24 and 5, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. So that's the ending of a letter. So it informs us that the author, whoever the author may be, has cast really the homiletical word of exhortation into letter form and put it in print to be circulated to the churches and to what needed to be written and what needed to be communicated to his friends because of some urgent need within the church. So, the common practice for all who want to take on a new book of study, whatever book of the Bible it may be, it has to start with asking some basic questions. All right, the only problem is when we come to the book of Hebrews, it's hard to answer those questions. We only could take guesses at them. And I'm, we're going to do that this morning. We have a little bit, a little bit of fun this morning asking some questions, looking at it, and giving you a sense of what uh, a little bit of a struggle with the book of Hebrews and this, has, this book has had in history. And but before we do that, let's, let's bow for a quick word of prayer. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning, Lord, as we come to a book of this caliber in nature. Help us, Lord, each week to be growing in what it's presenting about you. Help us to be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt when we're done, before we're done, that you are God's final revelation for all mankind. And I pray, Lord, that we would be strengthened in our faith and that, Lord, we would have the confidence to live by faith as those in Romans chapter or, or Hebrews chapter 11 like we have never lived before. That we would be able to hold up the shield of faith and ward off all the fiery missiles of Satan and stand strong with the shield of Christ and the armor of Christ. Enable us to do that, Lord, so we can live as lights in this world and glorify our Father who's in heaven. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So some of the common questions that one would have when they come to a book is, who wrote it? When was it written? Why was it written? In other words, what is the historical occasion that provoked this writing? To whom was it written? Who are the recipients of this book? Well, here is a great mystery because the identity of its author, the time of its writing, the people and place to which it was sent are all locked up by the Holy Spirit. We don't know. In past history, when the Word of God was coming together and all the books of the Bible were being written, Hebrews was surrounded by great controversy because these questions were not able to be answered. In fact, when it came to whether Hebrews should be part of the canon of Scripture. Now, I know that the word canon may be a, a new word for you, so let me just explain it. It's a word that denotes a read, or the sense, the read, that was used like a measuring stick, like our tape measure, was used actually that for that purpose, to, for measuring purpose. So this word canon uh, that came to mean or measuring a measuring rod or a standard of measuring something. So the books of the canon then are those writings that have been measured by a certain standard to determine whether they are indeed God's holy word. And they are passed, if they have passed the test, then they enter into the canon, of course, and if they don't, they don't. But fortunately, in saying that, it is not a man who accredits God's word. But God himself has done that, right? God himself has accredited his word. 
But nonetheless, man has set up a standard to determine what writings belong in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The 66 books that compile our Bible are said to be canonical or part of the canon that God has given to us, protected uh, for us, and now we have it in our hands as the final revelation of God. Now, some of the criteria that men would use in determining whether a book would be part of the canon was just some some, uh, criteria was simply this. Their test was the source of the writing. Uh, What source does it have? Does it have a sense of a divine source? A second question would be uh, the designer, the purpose of the writing. A third would be, is it clear that the work was given by immediate inspiration of God? In other words, was it, was it written by an apostle? And if it wasn't written by an apostle, uh, then what kind of a po- apostolic authority was connected to that book? So those are some things that they asked when determining whether a book was part of the canon of Scripture. Now, you can see by just some of these things, don't, and don't get too nervous about this, uh, the Hebrews is definitely, you're going to find, is the part of the Word of God, uh, as Owen has already said to us. But it, there were some problems in history as to when this book was actually accepted by some churches and groups. Uh, matter of fact, because no one knew or who wrote the book uh, or the historical occasion for its writing, It was not until the 4th century, actually, that it was finally determined to be apostolic and canonical. And in the year 367, the bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, uh, put the Eastern Church, uh, the Eastern Church's final stamp of approval upon the 27 books. And now uh, that is known, of course, today as the New Testament. It wasn't confirmed. And then it was also confirmed by what they call the Synod of Carthage in 7 in 397 A.D., and of course the last church that accepted the authenticity of Hebrews was the church at Rome. That was the last church that said that this would be part of the canon. Luther had problems with with this book, at least in the beginning, but then at the end of his life he gave all that up and said this is definitely the word of God. But the fact is that it it is divinely inspired and could hardly be called into question in view of its, as we get into it, its agreement with all the rest of Scripture, and also its revelation of Jesus Christ's deity, his grace, his sacrificial death, like in Hebrews chapter 9. His mediatorial work is found right here in the book of Hebrews. His coming is found in the book of Hebrews. So you will see that the contents of this book will surely be proved by itself. It is indeed the word of God. And no theologian today will deny the fact, that fact in our present day and and through most of history after this time. We cannot forget, though, that the author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. Those who have put pen to parchment and set down the message were merely writers So we must keep in mind that what the writers set down was by the Holy Spirit. Just like 2 Peter 1, verse 21 so clearly communicates where it says, No prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So, I have to get that before you. Uh, in any study of a book like this, you're going to find masses of amounts of, of information before you even get to the text on all this background stuff. But I, I just give it to you in a nutshell so you get the sense that there was a problem. No longer a problem. But let's, uh, let's, let's just look for a while uh, and just ask some questions as to who wrote the book of Hebrews. Let's, let's see what has some have said in the past, and then maybe you can make your own conclusion as you 
uh, hear what I have to say this morning. So I'll not go through the whole list of people that were candidates. I just want to highlight some of the higher range possibilities. But in the end, we can't conclude any of them. But here's the first one. In fact, it was the reason why some of the major theologians accepted the Hebrews into the canon that they finally determined that the Apostle Paul wrote it. Uh, that was the, what was the early church was convinced of this, uh, and that was, again, the main reason why it was accepted into Holy Scripture. Origen, uh, once Bishop of Alexandria, determined that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, and because of his influence, many followed suit. Uh, also, Clement of Alexandria, he said Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, and then what he said is this, that Paul wrote it in the Hebrew language, and then what he did is that Hebrew version was translated by Luke, the physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. All right? He took that Hebrew and translated it into Greek. So Luke, uh, we know, has a very, very highly polished Greek. Um, it's very difficult for Greek students uh, to interpret Greek. It is the hardest Greek in the Bible, Acts and Luke. Um, So he was a very smart man, very uh, eloquent Greek. And so therefore, this became the uh, conclusion of the early church. Jerome followed that conclusion. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, many others followed suit. But by the time of the Reformation, when Luther came on the scene, and and even John Huss before that, uh, when the Renaissance scholars began to... uh, have freedom to do more study and scholarly work, they began to look more closely at the literary structures of biblical books, a man such as Erasmus, and they found in studying the book of Hebrews that the literary differences um, were so opposite to the way Paul wrote and to the way Paul laid things out that they concluded in the end that Paul did not write the book of Hebrews. In fact, modern-day scholar F.F. Bruce evaluates the authorship of Hebrews as follows. He says, and I quote, We may say with certainty that the thought of the epistle is not Paul's, the language is not Paul's, the technique of the Old Testament quotations is not Paul's. But at the same time, not many would deny that when you read through the book of Hebrews, there is a Pauline influence there. There's a Pauline theology behind it. Uh, there's a, Paul had something to do with it, but not something directly to do with it. So Paul was the first candidate. Uh, the second candidate was, of course, Luke. Uh, because of his rich Greek uh, found in the book of Hebrews, Luke becomes a candidate because uh, of his Greek and because of his writing of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, it has that kind of quality to it, and so he becomes a strong uh, candidate for it. But uh, it has such a strong Jewish flavor to it, then it becomes very difficult to uh, place Luke as the writer of Hebrews. So we have to still questions there. And then some have come up with Barnabas. You remember who Barnabas was from the book of Acts, right? Remember that he was uh, the kind of person who was a close companion with Paul. Barnabas, remember, was called the son of encouragement. So early, early uh, Christian tradition suggested that Barnabas may have written Hebrews. And according to Tertullian, uh, in 220 A.D., many uh, early authorities believed that Barnabas was responsible for the letter because he was educated he had a pastoral mannerism about him. Remember what I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a message, it's a homily. So that would go in line with that. Um, he was, of course, he gave many Jewish exhortations, consolations, admonitions, calls to repentance are in the book. Uh, and furthermore, Barnabas was a Levite and would have been familiar with the Jewish sacrificial system so prominent in the letter. So he becomes a a candidate for the writing of the book. But again, we must say it's inconclusive. We don't know uh, who it is. And then we 
Uh, some have suggested Clement of Rome, or it was even done by a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, some have said it was, it's a second-generation Christian who wrote the book of Hebrews, who had a mastery of the classical Greek, who, uh, who knew the, the Bible in its Septuagint form. That's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they were conversant very much in, uh, in uh, Alexandrian philosophy. And they were definitely a, an apologist to the Christian faith. So it could have been a second generation Jewish Christian that wrote this book. But the last one I, I just want to suggest to you is that of Apollos. Now, the Bible doesn't say much about Apollos. But what it does say is very interesting. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18 for a second. Acts 18. If you remember back that far, it wasn't, it wasn't that long I was in the book of Acts. If, in Acts chapter 18, it gives us several things about Apollos because he was such a man of great ability. It was Martin Luther, actually, that suggested first that Apollos is a great candidate uh, to be included in the list of who wrote Hebrews in verse 24 of Acts chapter 18, look what it says. Uh, now, he was a Jew. Apollos was a Jew. Now, a Jew named Apollos. So, this shows that he was raised uh, outside of Israel, yet grew up and was nurtured in the Jewish faith and culture. Verse 24, it also says he was Alexandrian by birth. And remember, Alexandria was located in Egypt near the mouth of the Nile and had a large Jewish population. In fact, they had a great university and library there, and it was the main seat of Jewish Hellenistic learning. And remember, from our, our study in the New Testament survey, Hellenism or Hellenistic is when uh, a culture was influenced by the Greek culture and the Greek language. So here are Jews who have been now influenced by the Greek culture and the Greek language, meaning that they would know, Hebrews being written in Greek, that they would know the Greek. And so he also, uh, Apollos was learned under Philo. Uh, he, he, was, he learned the Old Testament. Um, and we know that in Alexandria, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's where it was done where it was translated, the Hebrew was translated into Koine Greek, called the Septuagint. If you're ever reading through a book and it has LXX, that means 70, that, that refers to the Septuagint. That's the marking for it. All right? And then in, look at verse number 24. He's also an eloquent man. Eloquent. This, this term, eloquent, don't get, uh, I don't want you to misunderstand it. It's actually a word that means learned. Uh, it appears only here in the New Testament, and it could mean a man, um, either a man of words, literally, or a man of ideas. Nonetheless, it means that he was a studied, well-educated person. And we know anybody who had to write Hebrews had to be well-educated in this background. And so, well... He, he, matter of fact, Apollos was, was trained in the finest institutions of learning in his time. And what's mo most important about him is that even though he had a fine education, it looked like it was all subservient to the education he received in the Hebrew Bible. And the next two verses indicate that. Look at verse number 24, the last part of the verse. And it says, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Verse 25 this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul starts out this argument? Now I mean that this, he says, that each of you is saying, I'm of a Paul. And then what they say, I'm of who? Apollos. And then I'm of Cephas, Peter, I'm of Christ. How did Apollos get in that list? Maybe because he was this kind of man. He was mighty in the scriptures. And then we look at verse chapter 18, verse 27 of Acts. It says here that he assisted the believers in their spiritual growth through his powerful preaching. It says, and when he had arrived, he greatly helped those 
who had believed through grace. So, all that faith is a gift of grace. And in verse 28, we see, for he powerfully... Now, here's, here, here he is. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So here's Apollos, an overwhelming debater, and is able to crush his opponents by disproving their points with Scripture. Mighty in Scripture. Brethren, I can't say, but you're going to have to decide who wrote Hebrews. We have to leave it there. I don't know. I know the Holy Spirit did, and the Holy Spirit wanted this book in the canon. But I don't know who. I do have a favorite. You may not you mean get a sense of what it is or who it is, but nonetheless, I don't I don't know. But that's all right. Let's just say, let's just say this that as to the identity of the author, we can affirm no more than Origen in the third century, who said this, but as to who actually wrote the letter, God only knows. That's all right. I'm, I'm all right with that. And you need to, too. All right, here's the second question uh, that is important to the book. Let's turn back to Hebrews. And uh, I want you to notice the, the second question would be this in starting out studying the book. Uh, to whom was the Hebrews written? Who, who, who was it written to? Well, again, we, we run into a, a real problem. Now, we do know this. It was written to Hebrews. Right? But we don't know which group. It wasn't a particular church. Um, it could be, are these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? Is he writing to them? Are they Jewish Christians from, remember, the diaspora, those who have been scattered outside of Palestine into all the Greek-speaking communities? Is he writing the letter to them? Uh, is he writing the letters to Christians being instructed to, that they need to uh, oppose Alexandrian Judaism that was trying to push its way back into the church and push these Jewish Christians back into the old system? All right, that could be a possi- That's a possibility. We see these trends in Hebrews, but we can't be conclusive, conclusive on any one of them. Uh, could they be Jew, a Jewish colony in Rome? Remember, uh, many of the Jews in Rome re- receive heavy persecution, especially, especially under Nero. And so this becomes a favorite uh, for scholars, this one right here, Jewish uh, colony of Christians in Rome. And the reason they give several reasons for that. One would be that the letter was first known in Rome no later than 96 A.D., a second thing is from Romans eleven thirteen and 18. It suggests that the church at Rome consisted of a Jewish Christian minority. And then, of course, a third thing would be reference to persecution and suffering. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 32. It says this in verse 32 and 33. It says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So somewhere down the line, these Christians being written to were persecuted. Whether it could have been in Palestine too. And that's a second favorite for some believing that the the tradition, the basic tradition was that there were Hebrews, uh, Jewish Christians living in Palestine, being other, under persecution, and Judaism pounding against the church for them to go back to the old way. Or to those who were on the edge of becoming believers, afraid to go the next step and believe in Christ because of this persecution and opposition. And so this becomes a real tension in the book of Hebrews, uh, and, and becomes a very important one for you and I, because 
this um, helps us to understand that these believers, whoever they were, whatever uh, group, whether they're in Palestine or Rome, they were definitely under a tension in which brought them to the place whether they either were believing in Jesus and going back and denying the faith, or they were not coming to believe in Jesus out of fear they would lose their life. All right? So that you're going to see that in Hebrews. That's why you have Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, very important chapters, but it gives us an indication something was going on in the book of Hebrews. Something was definitely happening there in the book of Hebrews. And then let me ask one, one last question before I close this morning. In, uh, and then, of course, next week I'll be getting into the chapter 1, the first couple verses, and starting to unpack uh, the, the things it begins to say about Jesus Christ. And that's, why was the book of Hebrews written? What was the purpose? Now, so I, I mentioned some of it, and, and there's, there's three good suggestions as uh, the purpose of the writing of Hebrews. And it would be, the first one would be, again, uh, would be Roman persecution. Remember, this is a word of exhortation. It's the final revelation that God's going to give to the Christian community. But we do know there was some kind of crisis that threatened the purity of the early church, but we really don't know specifically what it was. But the first one is a good indicator, and that of what I just mentioned in these verses, uh, Roman persecution. Now, remember, Rome was also an influence in Palestine, too. So it could be both, Rome or Palestine, or maybe it was both places. We don't know that, but martyrdom and the threat of martyrdom hit a group of Christians either in Rome or Palestine or wherever they were. Uh, So instead of them dying for their faith, they were denouncing their faith in the early church. But we really don't know what was connected to that. And so what happens is that, but wouldn't that be a common human reaction? That, listen, I pray someday that if I am called upon to denounce my faith, I would not, by God's grace. But what if you've seen your, some of your Christian brothers and sisters martyred right in front of your eyes simply for being a believer? That would work on you. And that's a, a good possibility that what was going on here. In fact, uh, R.C. Sproul uh, says here that the, some of these people are called lapses. That, and lapses were those who denied the faith under persecution. And then afterward, they wanted back into the church. And the big ordeal was, should we let them back in? That's, that's a complicated one, Right? I don't know if that would be me. I pray that I would die for the faith. It's, it's, it's worth that much. I know where I'm going, right? I know where I'm heading. I know what Christ has done for me, right? And so, therefore, I would just bow my head and let them do what they have to do. And if God intervenes and I didn't die, it will be, it will be God's will. He has some more work for me to do. But if not, I'm going to be... In his presence, right? Uh, see, they don't know that. They think they're getting over. They're, they think they're winning, but they, they haven't won. Nobody, nobody's won except Christ has won and all those who follow him. So see, the writer then in the book of Hebrew commends his readers that actually the need to be patient when enduring persecutions and suffering and that they were the heir of salvation, and so therefore could trust Jesus Christ. Like in, look at Hebrews chapter 12, and verse number 12, where it says this, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. 
And then in chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, in other words, giving them hope. Listen, don't give in and don't forget that you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be overcome by anyone. You're going there. And then it goes on in Romans 12 to let us know that, you know, we haven't endured as much as Christ endured. And, and what did our Lord endure? He endured suffering unto death, right? Why would we as his followers at any context in human history expect less than that someday? And it may come to that. Quickly, things may change. I always have that in my mind, that there is a great possibility that things may change on a dime and the atmosphere in our country could should just move rapidly in a direction we never knew before. That could happen. It happened to nations, nations before us. It could happen to us. See, so the book of Hebrews becomes vital in strengthening our faith to let us know where do we stand with Christ? Where are we going to go when we die? Are we sure of these things? See, that becomes vitally important. Also, the author of Hebrew proclaims to his readers the fearful judgment that awaits those who repudiate Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29 where he says this, for our God is a, what? Consuming fire. And then back to Hebrews, did I say Romans? I said Romans, I think. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to mix these two books up, I know it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse number, or chapter 10. Verse number 26 to 31, where it says this. And again, keep in mind that uh, in, he warns them of the tragic consequences of renouncing the Son. In, in uh, Hebrews 10, verse, what did I say, 26? Look, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the tr- truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer judgment or punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. In verse 31, It is a terrifying thing to fall in the, into the hands of a living God. See, this is priding those people not to repudiate Christ in any circumstance and not to be threatened by any group that says if you come over and leave this faith, Judaism, and come over fully in trust in Christ, you're going to get put to death. He's challenging them to trust in Christ. And if it means death, then so be it. See, it does take hard and strong language for us to be convinced of that. Because if they don't, and this is the key for everyone, for every religious system, if if they don't come to Christ, they will not escape God's judgment. That's where he starts out. Look at back in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse number 3. And I'm going to be looking at this verse when I get to it. And here is the question that he asks in verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? After it was, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was commend, confirmed to us by those who heard. He is saying here, listen, what makes you think, what makes us think that we can escape the judgment of God if we are indifferent to this great salvation, if we neglect or lay it aside as if it's nothing, how, how do you think you're going to escape? You know, the answer to that question is 
you won't escape. That's, the, that's it. There is no escape without Christ. There are not many ways. There's one way through Jesus Christ. He is the way of escape. Is he not? He is the one in which we are set free. So you see that this Roman persecution was a real threat to the people that the writer of Hebrews writes to and wants to inform them. A second thing that is uh, that can be uh, interjected here as far as um, why the book of Hebrews was written was an attack of the Judaizers. I already mentioned that, but look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Uh, the Judaizers, remember, found in Galatians, they were... Uh, people who wanted these Hebrew Christians to uh, have all the trappings of the, the old system in their new faith. So he tells them, listen, strange new teachings of certain Judaizers who sought to draw them back to their former religion, uh, you need to stop listening to them. It says in verse, chapter 13, verse 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Again, the thing that was going on in Colossians too, the the food thing. Uh, So these wavering believers, so they would not neglect what they ought to uh, pay attention to. And that's why you have the admonition in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. They were giving up even assembling together. Right? And then in, in Romans 13, listen, they lost confidence in their spiritual leaders because they thought their spiritual leaders were, were moving them and teaching them wrong when they, in fact they were teaching them right. And so there was really a problem, an issue, that this writer of Hebrews was trying to get at to strengthen the church, to rescue these Hebrew Christians. Christians from a demise that could be eternal and so it becomes and I I believe that's why it's more packaged like a sermon and and then put into a letter as an exhortation for people to read you can feel the heart of the preacher coming through to the people and and warning them and then at the same time encouraging them and then admonishing them and then just everything's in this book pointing them to their hope in Jesus Christ. So we see that the author, under the second one, the attack of the Judaizers, affirm the heavenly and eternal character of salvation secured by Christ. And he lets them know that the legal sacrificial system was powerless to affect the remission of sins. And Christ, of course, is the eternal high priest. That's why he says in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able also to save those forever or eternally or to the uttermost. Who? Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, listen, come to the God who's provided everything for you and draw near to him because he's able to save you to the uttermost eternally. No one else could do that. So don't hesitate. Don't step back. Come all the way over and believe in Christ. And let go of your what you have been holding to. Let go of your fear and trust in the one who always lives to make intercession for the saints. That God himself is the mediator and the, and, and the intercessor for all those who believe in him. And then there's one last thing under this one and this could be one that it really comes out in in the first uh, chapter of hebrews and and uh, some people say it was uh, the false teaching of a group called the aseans now we know of of two groups in scripture the pharisees and the sadducees right but there was another group that is not necessarily mentioned in scripture but definitely uh, josephus and philo mentioned this group as being a a very antagonistic group to uh, the true faith of believers. And um, 
And matter of fact, a lot of the information about it was found when they found this, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, and uh, they, they discovered some of these things. They, they, had, they suspected some of these things before by, by other extra-biblical writings, but now they confirmed it a little more that this could have been part of the problem on what the writer of Hebrews was addressing. And why was that? Because this group of Aseans had several characteristics to them. Uh, number one, they were ascetic. They kind of separated themselves from everybody else. Uh, they were very concerned about future events. That became a, a major part of their theology. They, they withdrew from society. But here is the, really the main thing, is they taught that God would send two messiahs. One would be priestly, and one would be kingly. And above those two messiahs would be the archangel Michael, who would rule over them. Now you say, well, that's, that seems odd. But look at chapter 1 of Hebrews. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. It says this, Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And then look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? See, th- there was definitely a problem here that people were involved with some kind of angelic hierarchy of worship. And so therefore, he's refuting that too. Now, several of these things can be all in one lump and be possibilities in this book and in the tension that we see in this book. But I must say that this kind of teaching would definitely overturn the portrait of Jesus Christ uh, that is presented in the New Testament. So, see, the book of Hebrews is written to expose and turn upside down those teachings that would steer away from Christ being completely supreme in all things, supreme over angels, supreme over kings, supreme over priests, supreme over prophets, and you have all that in Hebrews. So again, the author sought to inform his despondent, vacillating readers that Christ, the object of God's final revelation, is vastly superior to the greatest of Judaism's patriarchs to Judaism's religious system, and to all spiritual angelic beings that could ever be presented. And so, we may not know the answers to all the questions, uh, to all these introductory, basic study of a book questions, but we can be sure of this one thing, and I know you will be convinced of it as we go through the book, that the main theme the main focus, the main passion of this biblically authoritative book without any qualms at all is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of this book. And you will find it in every single chapter right to the end. See, if you don't come to Christ after studying a book like Hebrews, You'll never come. You'll never come. If your faith is not strengthened by studying a book like Hebrews, your faith will never be strengthened. If you don't come finally to a place that if you had to die for Christ after studying a book like Hebrews, it'll never happen. Maybe you say, well, I never want that to happen. Nobody wants that to happen, but there's a possibility it may. And I think we all have to be ready for that. But I'm not just talking about dying for your faith. I'm talking about going on your job and living for your faith. 
going into the school classroom as a teenager and living for Christ. Being addressing your sin as we ought to, living for Christ right now in your life. See, being the husband you ought to be, being the wife you ought to be, being obedient children uh, are all things that prod us when we study a book like this. Right? To live by faith. To be able to see further than anyone else. To be able to endure longer than anyone else. To be, to, to be able to run the marathon race. Why? Because you're a believer. Because you know things other people don't know. And you know what privilege it, it is for you to get into a book like this and know what the author is going to bring to us, you know what kind of privilege it is to know these things? I hope you see it like that. I really do. I hope you see it like that. Because I know that if you do and you give yourself to it, you will get all the benefits that you can possibly... Actually, you will get all the benefits that God has for you as you give yourself to the study, to the thinking of to the examination of yourself and to the practice of the theological uh, foundations given in this book for you every day to live as if Christ is supreme in your life in all things. You're going to live differently. I'm telling you. You're going to live in an eternal perspective. Eternity is going to be stamped on your eyeballs. You're not going to be just living in your little cube you're going to see the whole world and you're going to see an eternal perspective that only God can give as we give ourselves to the truth. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for having this book in the canon of Scripture. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for preserving it and protecting it. And Lord, as we get into it, as we see what it says about you. Oh Lord, use it to break us down. Use use it, Lord, to convict us of sin. Use it, Lord, to bring those who don't know you to conversion. Use use it in the lives of those who do know you to grow deeper in their faith and in their love for you. And Lord, use it ultimately to... Exalt your great name to the place it ought to be. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, we would worship you with a depth and an understanding that only the Spirit of God could give. And I pray this for us. Use it, Lord, as you see fit. And I just ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior. Uh, Amen.